Welcome to WPKN's Alternative Election Night coverage, hosted by Scott Harris and myself, Richard Hill. Tonight we'll explore, with the help of a roster of guests, issues that underlie the election and what appears to be our flailing, or should I say failing, democracy. We have a few minutes before our first guest. I just wanted to raise something to you, Scott, for your reaction. I find it amazing that we've been through four years of racking up evidence of Donald Trump's criminal intent and behavior. We've seen the resistance begin in January 2017 with over a million outraged people in D.C. I was there. I'm sure you were, too, at the Women's March. And we've seen the resistance begin to kind of spread and mushroom out to wider and wider concentric circles to include mainstream politicians, formerly so-called moderate Republicans, and then even White House staffers, military and national security figures, and dyed-in-the-wool neocons like William Crystal and David Frum. And through it all, Trump's corruption and crimes have continued and, and increased, really. His dismantling of environmental and civil rights protections, his horrifying immigration policies and actions, his criminal negligence regarding the COVID pandemic, all these continue to accumulate and to be noted in all corners of the mainstream media. But now we find ourselves on Election Day with it all, all of that reduced down to the typical on the one hand and on the other hand, the sort of typical bifurcated battle between Democrats versus Republicans with a margin of error polling numbers separating their election prospects. Very narrow races going on in, in many of these battleground states. Scott, what do you think this says about our political system, our media, and actually about the American people? Well, I think uh, what you have had over a number of uh, decades now is an electoral college system, which gives us a very distorted system of governance where uh, small states, large states matter more than who, ones, who wins most votes. And in democracies all across this planet, whoever makes the most votes is the winner. In this country, it's a very crazy and undemocratic, decidedly undemocratic system where the Electoral College, in the view of many, if not most Americans, should be abolished. It's a slave-era uh, artifact. And, uh, you know, we, we've certainly lived through the 2000 election and the 2016 election where the person who won the most, most votes, and that would have been uh, former Vice President Al Gore and uh, Hillary Clinton, both won most votes. But the other guy won. So we have a very distorted and broken system. And, uh, you know, speaking to the disastrous last four years and why we have a system that might very, uh, very well allow Donald Trump to continue for another four years against the will of the people speaks to that disaster. And it's my view, and I hope the view of many people listening tonight and across the country, that one of the priorities has to be to fix our, our very broken system, to fix the electoral system, to put in place checks and balances, to prevent this massive purging of voters, voter suppression, gerrymandering, and all manner of uh, ways that dirty tricks are, are very much uh, allowed and uh, permitted to wreck political campaigns. This doesn't really happen in many other industrial nations with democratic systems, but it happens in ours, and it's got to be fixed, in my view. I wonder what your thoughts are about the way the media has presented this in their inimitable fashion, you know, as a kind of 
horse race and no matter what the the egregious behavior of the uh, incumbent is you know it all comes down to this last week or two when the poll numbers are you know they're tightening and once again that seems to be happening it happens every time this is not a typical election we i mean we have this kind of two-tiered system we we were sort of operating pretending you know we're having a normal democratic process exercising our democratic franchise and all that on the other hand, we have this sort of snake pit of dirty tricks, voter suppression, legal chicanery, and actions that will take place starting probably at uh, 1 a.m. on uh, November 4th, and the potential for literally millions of ballots to be thrown out. So what's your, your take on, on how the media has been dealing with this? I spoke to uh, Victor Picard last night in the show I do on Monday evenings, Counterpoint, and yep. we had a long discussion about the media. One of the really sore points with the media system in the United States is that all the surviving media, and we've had many newspapers uh, bite the dust. We have, you know, dozens, hundreds of uh, newspapers that have uh, crumpled under this this new digital system. But all these uh, media outlets, for the most part, are for profit. So what bleeds leads, and uh, what's outrageous is contagious. (laughs) <laughs> As, which is what uh, Victor said last night. And it, it's very true. And it, it again, it, it really distorts what is important to most Americans and uh, replaces it with sensationalism. And, of course, with uh, digital media, whoever gets the most clicks wins in terms of advertising. And uh, that's what drives our system. So we have just all manner of crazy stories out there. And social media is another big issue, of course, where conspiracy theories and some of the ugliest uh, types of racism and hate-mongering are permitted to go forward, again, because whatever makes the most clicks makes the most money. And if you have a for-profit-driven media system, that's uh, that's what we're going to get. And uh, Victor Picard and many other people, including Jeff Cohen and folks at FAIR and many other media critics, are, are very strong advocates of trying to transform our media system where we have uh, a nonprofit organizations and foundations sponsoring investigative journalism and uh, putting up the funds for, uh, you know, small-scale investigative uh, local journalism so that you know what the school board's doing and you have uh, a, a real line into what's going on in City Hall and your tax base with all these local newspapers disappearing. That's a handicap for democracy both at the local and national level. Right now, we have the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, along with uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber II, who's on the line with us. Uh, the, the Poor People's Campaign has organized the largest and the most expansive wave of nonviolent civil, civil disobedience actions in U.S. history. Uh, Dr. Theo Harris is the director of the Cairo Center for Religious Uh, Rights and Social Justice at the Union of Theological Seminary. Dr. Theo Harris, thank you so much for joining us on this election night. Well, thank you so much for having me. What are some of your uh, big concerns? I know high on your agenda at the Poor People's Campaign is to address the kind of invisible issue of poverty and inequality in our country, not much discussed in this and many former campaigns that we've lived through, Uh, the issue of um, uh, poverty is is one that gets very little deserved attention in this country. So what are some of your thoughts on this election and what's at stake? So indeed, uh, there's 140 million people who are poor or one fire, one health care crisis, 
one job loss, one storm, one emergency away from deep poverty in this country. That's 43.5% of the population. And this is all before the COVID-19 pandemic. And yet the issues, the needs, the demands of poor and low-income people are, as you were talking about, rarely in our political discourse. So the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, has been involved in mobilizing and organizing, registering and educating poor and low-income people for our movement, but we're a movement that votes. We came out in August with a, with a study uh, that Columbia University researchers helped to put together with us that shows that when poor and low-income people vote together around issues that are about our needs, whether it's health care, living wages, quality education, strong safety nets, um, these kinds of issues, that uh, poor and low-income voters, eligible voters, have the power to exceed the margin of victory if folk just voted at the same levels that, that higher-income people did. And so, you know, much of our concern is are the issues, are the demands of, you know, almost half of this nation um, going to be uh, front and center, not just in this election, but in whatever administration comes to power. And so we've been out there today monitoring polls in 10 states, um, you know, uh, raising a lot of voter suppression, voter protection issues. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've uh, texted or or called uh, more than 2.3 million poor and low-income people um, across the country in states um, all over the South, all over the Midwest, all over the nation, uh, making sure that people see the power that poor and low-income people have to really change the political landscape and to um, you know, help to, to bring a more just society into reality. Thank you for that, Dr. Theo Harris. And... Many poor people across the country in in recent elections have not turned out for elections for a host of reasons, but some of it relates to feeling that their vote doesn't matter, that whoever's in office, that their their economic crisis is going to be ignored one more time. Um, Is that different this time around, in your view? Well, I do think that there are a whole host of reasons that keep poor and low-income people from from participating in the in the electoral process. I mean, what we know is that in 2016, 100 million people uh, sat out, um, 34 million of those who are poor and low-income. Uh, and so, indeed, um, there's about 63, 64 million poor and low-income uh, eligible voters, and and there's there's a number of things that are getting in the way of people participating in this democracy. I mean, one is actually racist voter suppression, right? This is the second presidential election that we're going through that have that we don't have the full protections of the Voting Rights Act um, in effect. And you know, 26 states since 2013 have passed voter suppression laws, and and so we're seeing that you know in polling places across the country in different states across the country. I mean. Right now in Florida, for instance, we know there's nearly 800,000 people that were disenfranchised because of um, uh, uh, real voter suppression about, you know, keeping uh, folks with a criminal record off of the ability to vote. And so voter suppression, especially targeted at poor people, at people of color, communities of color, is, is a real thing. There's also what you're saying, the the fact that we're not hearing enough about the issues of poor and low-income people. But what we have seen and what we are 
calling people to is that we have to do more, that that even if politicians don't raise the issues that poor and low-income voters have, uh, we can as poor and low-income people, and, and we can uh, demand change um, and really shift this political landscape that way. And, and um, you know, what we're hearing from folks that were in line in Alabama at, starting at 5 a.m. this morning, um, even though their polling place wasn't even opened on time, let alone at that point, um, whether it's the high voter turnout we're hearing across Mississippi, um, across um, many states across the country, uh, it, it seems to us that, that poor and low-income people are in the numbers as um, folks are, are voting. Um, and, and, you know, what we're, our message is to folks that are, have gotten into line um, to stay in line and make sure your vote gets counted because um, we do have the power to, to change uh, this whole political process. Dr. Theo Harris, this is Richard Hill speaking. Uh, I wonder if you could give us a sense of the type of response you've been getting from the, as you said, millions of people you've you've tried to contact through social media or uh, direct phone calls or texts and, and other ways such as that. And also maybe comment on the rather stunning success that the Poor People's Campaign has had in organizing a multiracial movement that has just been so effective in many, many regions of this country. So thanks so much for for that. Um, Indeed, the Poor People's Campaign is organized in almost 45 states across the country with coordinating committees made up of poor and impacted leaders, of moral leaders and clergy, of activists and advocates, um, really crossing all of those lines, those racial lines, those geographic lines, and other lines of division historically in this country. And and I think it's because we're a ground-up movement um, that that folks are, are really coming together, coming forward with solutions, building power, shifting the narrative, and, you know, in this election season, really making sure to, to register and vote and make our voices heard. I mean, it's been powerful over the last couple of weeks um, to have reached out to 2.3 million poor and low-income eligible voters. We're doing that in ASL and, and uh, sign language. Uh, we're doing that bilingually in Spanish and English. Um, we're doing it to, to folks. We've done it to folks that, you know, are rarely um, spoken to in our political life. And, you know, the, the kinds of um, response, the kinds of texts, I mean, we, we know that in the first, you know, as of before this weekend, that of the two million folk we had reached out to, that more than 20 percent had had participated in early voting. And so, you know, that that seems to be a, a, a very significant number. And, and we'll still have to see, you know, after after the, the returns come in more. But but, you know, the, the conversations, the text conversations, the phone conversations, the contact has been powerful. And, you know, again, it's about welcoming people into a movement and then encouraging people to exercise their power by voting and by getting involved and pushing and organizing and mobilizing communities and, and building a movement, you know, from the bottom up. Reverend Theo Harris, before we conclude tonight, I, I wanted to ask you, what's on the agenda for the Poor People's Campaign post-election? Regardless of who wins, the, the issues of poverty and inequality aren't going away tomorrow, that's for sure. But uh, what are the things that your group, you and, and Reverend Barber, what are you going to be focusing on in the uh, months ahead? 
So we've put out from the founding of the Poor People's Campaign that we need to shift this narrative. We need to get this nation talking and and showing that we can do more, uh, especially in this pandemic, and that we need to build power. And obviously, some of that power is really about folks um, participating in the electoral process, but it also means just continuing to organize, build up power. You know, uh, I like to think about um, a model from uh, our brothers and sisters at the U.S.-Mexico border in El Paso who talk about the need to build permanently organized communities. And and really, that's what the Poor People's Campaign is about. Um, you know, as we see the, you know, a huge growth in evictions as more and more people are losing their health care in a, a public health crisis, as social welfare programs and austerity programs are, are what is now becoming norm in this country, what we know is that uh, we have the power in our hands to, to organize and to, to change all of that. You know, it costs our society more to have the level of poverty, to have the level of inequality that we have. And it doesn't have to be this way. And so we know that, you know, after tonight, we'll keep organizing, we'll keep mobilizing, we'll keep building up that power and um, making our voices heard you know, not being silent about these issues and, and coming forward in power with, with the solutions that are at hand um, that must be implemented immediately to, to lift the load of poverty and to, to you know, combat systemic racism, to, to save the planet and to turn our, our war economy and our militarized communities into a peace economy um, where peace and justice and truth reign. Well, thank you so much for spending uh, part of your election eve with us this evening, uh, Reverend Theo Harris. Take care, Thank uh, you. Reverend Theo. Thank you so much. Good night. That's Dr. Reverend Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, uh, along with Reverend Dr. William Barber. joined by Medea Benjamin. She's the co-founder of the feminist anti-war organization Code Pink Women for Peace, which advocated the end of the Iraq war, the prevention of future wars, and for social justice. For decades, she's been on the forefront of numerous struggles against U.S. imperialism, violence, and economic inequality. Her most recent book is titled Kingdom of the Unjust Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. Medea, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to hear your voice again. Why don't you give us, from where you stand, your impression of where we are with this American, I'll put it in quotes, democracy, and why don't you just give us your sense of of what's going on in this country right now? (laughs) (laughs) Well... You know, I, I focus on foreign policy issues, and that's like low down. It barely even comes in uh, with a number in terms of what people care about in this country. And it seems like the economy is up there on the top, and health care is up there at the top. And I just don't understand how, with the unbelievable levels of inequality in this country, with the uh, minimum wage at like $7 and change, um, with the health care disaster and the pandemic we're dealing with, how people can think that Trump is doing a good job on that, much less the issues I care about. 
on the foreign policy front. So I tell you, it's a, it's a, a, a strange time to look at your fellow citizens in the United States and just think, how can millions and millions of people think that we could stand four more years of Donald Trump? And I say this with my own relatives voting for Donald Trump, and it just drives me nuts. We are such a divided country right now, and uh, people are so uh, caught up in the, in the propaganda of Trump. And it does make me scary that it's even a close election. It shouldn't be close at all. Not that Biden is something, you know, great that we want to jump up and down and vote for. Uh, but certainly it should not be close voting against Donald Trump. Medea, I did want to ask you where you are tonight. I, when we spoke earlier, you talked about being at a Black Lives Matter protest in Washington, D.C. I'm not sure I got it straight there, but tell our listeners what you're up to this evening. Yeah, I just stepped away so it would be quiet, but there is a, oh, kind of a rally slash um, just getting together with uh, music and a kind of a, a strange sort of celebratory atmosphere, but but weirdly not. Uh, <laughs> so it's Black Lives Matter, a group called Shutdown DC, uh, a lot of different affinity groups, and then in, nearby in what's called McPherson, that, that's a, as close as you can get to the barricaded White House right now, which is very far. For those who don't know, there's a park in front of the White House called Lafayette Park. That's been closed. And then that fence that there has been reported, the non-scalable fence, is a fence around a fence around a fence. So there's really like a green zone in Iraq bunker type atmosphere. Hmm. And the people are outside then uh, the fence as close as we can get. And there's a tribute to Black Lives Matter that's been up on the fence. Sometimes it gets taken down by uh, right-wing folks or this group of Jesus lovers who comes down, takes it down, then we put it back up the next day. Um, but now there's a beautiful tribute uh, up on that fence. And then just two blocks away in McPherson Square, there's a jumbotron, and people are there socially distancing and watching the returns from the elections. So that's what's happening in D.C. But depending on what goes on tonight, uh, there are plans for the next uh, days uh, uh, by Shutdown D.C. and these different affinity groups that includes like... Uh, the Sunrise Movement, Extinction Rebellion, Democratic Socialists of America, all kinds of groups have their own affinity groups. And we're ready to go starting tomorrow morning. And I think um, no matter what happens tonight, some of those actions will continue because obviously the agenda of uh, those groups will not be carried out by anybody who's going to go to the White House. Medea, uh do you feel that the, the, the nation's activist uh, network is prepared to deal with an attempt to steal the election, either by shutting down the vote in particular battleground states or using the courts to try and uh, decertify ballots or any number of uh, dirty tricks that we've heard are coming from the Trump regime and the, uh, the Republican Party? Are we prepared to deal with the theft of our democracy? Well, it's so interesting because I'm a veteran of 2000 uh, when I was down in Broward County when those uh, hanging chads were being counted. And I was with the Green Party and managed to actually get inside to be part of the counting. 
But I saw when Jesse Jackson came down there and started organizing people, particularly in the black churches, and folks were ready to start sit-ins and, you know, really take to the streets doing nonviolent civil disobedience. And the Democratic Party said, no, no, we're going to do this through the courts. Uh, And then, of course, we have what happened four years ago. I think the difference now is that the activist uh, movement or anybody who considers themselves uh, an an activist are not going to listen to the Democratic Party. That's not where we're going to take our cues. And people are organized all over the country to get out on the streets if we feel this election was stolen. So I feel... Uh, better about the, where we are because there are so many grassroots organizations and because people understand this is really not about Joe Biden. This is about our electoral system and stopping it from being stolen. Medea, given that you have been an activist probably since you were a teenager, I just wondered what your take is on the youth involvement in this struggle and actually conversations that have been taking place in the youth movement about joining a national strike, shutting down their schools, or at least uh, striking their schools. What do you know about that, and what's your take on that? I I think it's the most uh, exciting stuff that's going on, in addition to the Black Lives Matter movement, and a lot of those people are young. Um, is the youth movement. It might be a tremendous youth turnout for this election, which could uh, sway the election in favor of Biden. And if not, there are, as you mentioned, a lot of youth organizations, both very local at the school level, as well as national, um, that are ready to take to the streets. And uh, I'm very excited about that. As an elder in this movement, I really enjoy being part of a movement that is led by young people. And I myself are I'm in affinity groups that are led by young people, and I find it extremely exciting. They're serious. They understand that the future of their country and their planet is on the line here. Uh, so I think we'll see a lot of youth rebellion if indeed uh, this is, uh, we see this as a stolen election. And finally, you said your main focus or one of your main focuses is on foreign policy, and no doubt that has to do with U.S. militarism and imperialism. What do you see as something that we should be advocating of the new administration, let's say it is a Biden victory, to try to mitigate this obsession with the United States military budget and the increase in uh, military operations all over the planet? Well, one thing I think we can get from a Biden administration that's absolutely essential is stop the U.S. from supporting the Saudi-led war in Yemen. And I say it's essential because people are really suffering there. And Biden has said that he would stop that. So we have to hold him to that. He also said the U.S. would rejoin the Iran nuclear deal, which is extremely important. But one thing he hasn't said, and we must do, is lift the brutal sanctions that have been imposed on countries from Venezuela to Cuba to Syria to Iran. And Biden has not agreed yet to do that. So it's something very important to do. And on that note, somewhat related, I just want to say the one thing that is really hurting me so much is to watch what's happening in Florida right now. Uh, If Florida goes for Trump, 
one of the reasons will be because of the uh, the mobilizing of the right wing uh, members of the Cuban American and Venezuelan American community there. And there has been such a propaganda campaign against socialism and so much fanaticism about Joe Biden will turn us into Venezuela um, that there is a, a, a large turnout from that community. And that might actually lose Florida, which could potentially even swing the whole election. So I think there's a lot of work that has to be done afterwards um, to go back to what we, we won during the Bernie Sanders campaign, which is socialism is not a bad word. It's not a dirty uh, term, and that we can't let people turn our entire uh, the, the, the voting in, in southern Florida uh, around on a campaign to malign uh, the, the idea of socialism and allow Trump to continue to uh, strangle the people of those countries. So people have to remember there's real suffering going on because of this Trump administration. And uh, whether or not we're able to turn it around in this election, um, we have to pay more attention to what our government is doing to people around the world. Well, Medea Benjamin, we want to thank you very much. Medea Benjamin, co-founder of the feminist anti-war organization Code Pink Women for Peace. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's so great to have your commentary and perspective as part of our election night coverage. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, <laughs> good luck. Thanks, Medea. Bye-bye. And now we are joined by Michael Dunham, a resident, I believe, of Shelton, Connecticut, and uh, also a WPKN programmer. Michael, we're so glad you could join us to give us an update on your voting experience today and also whatever commentary you might want to add. Yes, it's good to be here. And obviously, for those who know me better, I'm a longtime Bridgeport resident, and I grew up right down the street from the WPKN studios for about 10 years. But anyway, I got up early this morning probably about 4 a.m. I think um, the apprehension and the, the apprehension and the excitement of the day got me up that early. And um, our plan was to go over to our polling place about 5, 30, 6 o'clock, which we did. And um, I was worried about a possible hour or two or three wait because when we got there, the lion snaked all the way around the building to the back of the school. And um, I was also concerned about any signs or any inklings of voter intimidation. Uh, well, imagine, to my surprise, after expecting the worst, I found neither. It was uh, it was pretty quick and efficient. We got there about 6 and got to the back of the line, and within a half hour, we were out. Um, I did ask one couple who were leaving what time did they arrive, and they said around 5.15, so it was a pretty good gauge for me personally, for us, because... We didn't have to wait that long. And it was pretty uneventful. 
The only thing close to exciting was seeing a young reporter. I think he was from WPLJ, and he was interviewing a black man, <laughs> not me, but <laughs> in that line of about probably 95% white Sheldon residents. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a cool thing to see. But I want to I give a shout-out to the people on site and the poll organizers and the residents who made for an efficient process. As far as what I would like to say from a commentary standpoint, I think this is without a doubt the most important election of our lives. And um, as a man of color who feels the weight of the skin I'm in, as well as the greatness of the skin I'm in on a day-to-day basis, and also a man who's lost his mother and sister-in-law eight days apart due to COVID, uh, due to the total lack of leadership, empathy, the politicizing of a pandemic that will kill millions if this leadership is not changed. This is a matter of life and death, not only with COVID-19, but also the Postal Service, the the Supreme Court, law enforcement, white supremacy, uh, the cult that has enveloped the right, making them virtually sinister with this Carnival Barker game show host at the top. This guy, and we must not forget this guy has the nuclear codes, That in and of itself is scary due to the serious character flaws of this racist. Not only that, if he loses, we must remain aware, awoke, and vigilant because he is still the occupant until January 20th, 2021. You know, we're living in dangerous times, um, made more so by an individual who has no soul and at his very uh, core is an infantile coward, a schoolyard bully whose power is further, is further magnified by a group of sycophants who enable his every ridiculous move because of their fear of him, which I've never understood, and desperation to remain in power. He is hoping that we have new leadership, and while they're not perfect, they are most necessary. Mm. Those are my thoughts. That went right to my gut and to my heart, Michael. That was well said. Thank you. So much appreciated to have your perspective. Yes. Uh, Thanks for for letting me come on and and basically give you my perspective. And I'm I'm tuned in anyway. So I'm I'm between watching TV and listening to you guys. My plate is full. (laughs) That's the way to go. That's the way to go, man. Thank you so much, Michael Dunham. Have a great night. Take care. Michael Dunham, the producer here at WPKN, uh, sharing his experience and thoughts on this historic day, as he said. We're now joined by Dr. Jack Rasmus. He's a professor of economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of the just-published book, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. And he's uh, an activist and a blogger. He blogs at jackrasmus.com and hosts the weekly radio show Alternative Visions on the Progressive Radio Network. He's also a frequent contributor to Counterpunch Magazine. That's counterpunch.org. And you can join him for daily commentary on developments in the U.S. economy and politics on Twitter at Dr. Jack Rasmus. Dr. Rasmus, thank you so much for uh, coming back to WPKN 
for, I'm not sure if this is your third visit, but it's a pleasure to have you. Well, my pleasure to join you. There are two questions that I wanted to put to you tonight. I wanted you to uh, maybe amplify a little bit your recent article that I saw, which is entitled, Why the Record Vote Turnout May Not Matter. That's the one thing that we could talk about. And the other is, for your analysis of the U.S. economic situation in the face of the third quarter data that came out talking about, I believe, a 30 percent rise in the economic activity in the GNP. Why don't we start with um, maybe the economic side, and then uh, if we have time, we can go to your amazingly frightening analysis of what might happen post-election. Well, as far as the economy is concerned, uh, you know, this 33 percent that Trump is running around talking about is uh, a gross misrepresentation. Uh, what it really reflects is that if the rebound that started in June uh, continued for 12 more months, uh, then uh, you would get to 33 percent, which is just absurd. Never happens that way. Uh, actually, the second quarter here decline from March through uh, June, uh, about 10.5%, which is a very big number in terms of GDP, 10.5%. And we got a rebound that started in in May and June, uh, continued to, into July, a rebound, not a recovery, just a rebound as the economy opened up, uh, and that produced a 7.4% uh, recovery, uh, which is about 68% of what was lost. Uh, roughly two-thirds, let's say. But more importantly, uh, by August, that rebound uh, clearly began to fade. Uh, as you probably know, uh, you know, we lost the uh, $600 um, supplemental unemployment benefits. Uh, we started continuing to have uh, a million uh, people uh, a week on new filings for unemployment claims. Uh, large companies started announcing uh, permanent long-term layoffs. Uh, a lot of things began to come into play here in August, uh, and the economy began to fade somewhat. Uh, and that has continued. Uh, more importantly, what we're facing uh, in the fourth quarter is uh, an even worse situation economically, uh, pretty much uh, agreed to by most economists. Uh, even Goldman Sachs uh, cut its uh, forecast, GDP forecast, in half for the fourth quarter here, October through December. I've been writing about this and predicting this, uh, and the reason why we're, we're going to uh, hit a wall, we are hitting a wall right now, uh, and it could be a negative GDP. We could have a double dip. Here is three reasons. Uh, one is that there is no further fiscal stimulus. The fiscal stimulus of March, April has been uh, totally exhausted. It's dissipated, uh, and... Uh, you know, unemployment, the checks, the PPE, uh, small business bailout, and so forth. Uh, they haven't passed another stimulus, which is desperately needed. Uh, and uh, that's going to have a big effect on the economy. Uh, and secondly, uh, it's COVID. COVID is resurging again, a third wave, even worse than the first. Uh, and even if we don't shut down the economy, which they won't, we will have selective shutdowns, and um, people simply aren't going to uh, get out there and spend on services and entertainment and so forth. Uh, they're going to self-isolate in a lot of places, and that's going to reduce the economy uh, recovery. And then thirdly, uh, we will see here uh, to what extent following this election we have a significant political instability which will have a dampening effect on business investment and also on uh, consumption and spending. So we have these 
uh, uh, triple forces that were hitting here on an economy that began to fade and slow down in August and September, except for manufacturing. You see, manufacturing and to some extent housing uh, is still doing okay. Uh, and that's largely because people aren't spending on services and instead they're spending their money on buying goods and things. And as far as housing is concerned, uh, you've got uh, upper middle class and wealthy people uh, leaving the cities and buying homes in the, in the suburbs. Uh, so you get a little boost from consumption. You get a little boost uh, uh, from the shift in spending for goods and manufacturing. But if you put manufacturing and, and construction together, it, it's not even 20 percent of the total U.S. economy. Eighty percent of the economy is services. And a good part of those services, uh, transport, hotel, accommodations, etc., are uh, really in a funk. Uh, and uh, that's why they sometimes say we got a K-shaped recovery. You know, part of it's going down and part of it's going up. Well, the part that's going up is only one-fifth of the part that's going down. Uh, and we're going to hit a wall here very soon, if not already hitting it. Uh, which is going to get worse with political instability. So, uh, you know, what I'm looking at is that um, we're going to have a significant slowdown from even that 7.4% here in the fourth quarter. Uh, and it could even go negative. It depends. We could have a double dip. And uh, that creates what I've been predicting since March, which is a W-shaped recovery. You see, uh, you have a a big crash going down, which we did in the spring. You got a partial second leg of the W letter going up in the second quarter, but now that's going down again, the third leg of the letter W. So it's a W-shaped recovery, and it's certainly not 33%. Jack, I wanted to, uh, in the minutes we have left, I, I think it might be best if we just finish up with this conversation about the economy, because the other conversation, maybe we could refer people to the article that you wrote on this entitled Why the Record Vote Turnout May Not Matter. So let's presume that Donald Trump loses this election and uh, Joseph Biden is uh, the president. What are the prospects for his economic magic that he's going to be able to uh, create to turn the situation around? What, who, what could he do to reverse this uh, double dip situation that you're talking about? Well, you know, first of all, I would caution people not to put too much into what politicians' economic programs are when they're running for office. Uh, you know, they, it's really their marketing tools, really. And uh, what really matters is uh, once they're elected and in place, uh, who are the advisors they bring on and what ideas do they bring on uh, and programs and suggestions. I think if Biden wins... Uh, and it's going, you know, winning when is a question, uh, winning this week uh, or winning in January, uh, because uh, Trump is going to fight, I believe, uh, the, the election. And uh, I believe that uh, we aren't going to get a stimulus in, in December. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but if we don't, uh, you know, Trump may have a scorched earth attitude towards leaving a mess for Biden when he actually does get in next next January 20th. So it depends on how bad things get between now and then. It depends on the advisors that come in. Uh, and it depends on uh, whether Biden uh, really breaks from uh, the Obama program, which was a kind of a minimalist program, and really stimulates the economy with a, a big infrastructure uh, spending uh, and uh, with a big stimulus in other ways uh, that stimulates households, uh, or, or does he go after uh, going easy on retracting the Trump 
four trillion dollar tax cuts, uh, and, and that looks like you know he's not going to re, uh, recoup all those tax cuts from what I can see already. Uh, and it depends on his advisors to a to a great extent, and how bad the economy gets in the next next two months. I can't really answer that. I don't know whether he's yeah. going to listen more to his progressive wing of uh, you know Sanders and, and Warren, and uh, really put a stimulus together. Uh, that stimulates uh, uh, the middle class and the working class, or whether he uh, he, he does a minimalist thing uh, and listens to the corporate wing of the Democratic Party. That remains to be seen. Well, Jack, that was wonderfully clear and very incisive commentary. Dr. Jack Rasmus, economist based in California, professor at uh, St. Mary's College. We thank you so much for being part of uh, WPCAN's alternative election coverage tonight. Thanks so much. My pleasure.